The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Since we've resumed studying systematic theology, we began the uh, study of the doctrine of man, the creation of man, man is male and female, the essential nature of man. You remember that one. That's one of our all-time favorite ones. Is man two parts or three? Yes, admit it. That was one of your favorite studies ever. Okay. Then we talked about the doctrine of sin and the covenants. Um, Tonight we begin, or this afternoon, we begin a new section, the doctrines of Christ and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, beyond that, uh, subsections of that person of Christ, which we'll be getting into uh, this week and next week, then the doctrine of the atonement, resurrection and ascension, the office of Christ, and then uh, in one little subsection, the work of the Holy Spirit. Part five is the doctrine of the application of redemption. Uh, one of the great books that I've ever read uh, is Redemption Accomplished and Applied. And so that's just a great work. The work of Jesus Christ is to accomplish redemption. The work of the Holy Spirit is to apply it. And so this office of the Holy Spirit is then moved out into part five, how redemption is applied. And so Grudem talks about common grace, uh, the doctrines of election and reprobation, which I think would be somewhat familiar to this church in that we've just been through Romans 9, but we'll go through some of those things again uh, in due time. The gospel call and effective calling, regeneration, conversion, uh, faith and repentance, justification, adoption, sanctification, baptism and filling with the Holy Spirit, Perseverance of the saints, uh, death in the intermediate state, glorification, and union with Christ. Those are all elements of our salvation process. It's really quite glorious, if, you, if these things mean anything to you, uh, to look at each one and just see all that God is giving us in Christ. It's really riches beyond compare, if you stop and think about it. All of the things that God has already done for you, if you're a Christian, all the things that he is doing in you and around you now, all the things he will do while you still remain in this world and the things that wait for you in the next world, what a glorious uh, meditation that is. Just look at it. I bet you most tables of content don't uh, lead you into worship like this one does, but you just read it and say, boy, are we rich in Christ. Amen? And then you've got part six, the doctrine of the church, the church, its nature, marks and purposes, the purity and unity of the church, the power of the church, church government, means of grace within the church, Uh, baptism, the Lord's Supper, worship, gifts of the Holy Spirit, and uh, in two two studies, just general issues and specific gifts. And then finally, some people's favorite study, eschatology, or the doctrine of the future, Uh, return of Christ, the millennium, final judgment with eternal punishment, and the new heavens and the new earth. That's it. That's the whole scope of Grudem's work. And now we're zeroing in uh, you know, all, all joking aside, when we look at the essential nature of man and is man two parts or three parts, I acknowledge that that's not one of the shining moments of systematic theology, but tonight is. As we study the person of Christ, we look at the virgin birth, um, uh, the incarnation, these doctrines, these are absolutely essential to our faith. These aren't extras. Uh, this is really at the core of what we believe about our Savior, Jesus Christ. Any questions about this overview, where we are? Big picture as we study and begin a new subsection here, the doctrines of Christ and of the Holy Spirit. Any questions? All right, well, let's uh, roll up our sleeves and look at it together. Uh, The person of Christ, the question that Wayne Grudem is seeking to answer in this, chapter 26, is how is Jesus fully God and fully man, yet one person? How is Jesus fully God 
and fully man, and yet he is one person. First uh, Timothy 3.16 is a great verse for this study. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up in glory. Speaking of Christ, of course. And so what it says is those uh, minor, uh, not minor, but uh, a short list of some of the elements of the doctrine of Christ in there. Uh, Paul says the mystery is great. We are looking at, at deep mysteries when you come to this. How, how can you possibly have one person and yet fully God, fully man? It's a deep stu- uh, study and a, a deep subject, but well worth our time. We should be pondering Christ all the time. It's an amazing thing how the Apostle Paul, who was the conduit of so much revelation, so much that we know about God and his work in us, so much of what we know about Jesus Christ and of uh, some of these doctrines we've touched on lightly in an overview uh, form uh, so far even today. So many of those things have come through the Apostle Paul, and yet he's the one that says, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. What is he saying? We'll never fully know him. He's an infinite person. It's an infinite study, but still well worth our time. Now, just to give you the overview, we've already done it, but we're looking uh, now immediately at the doctrine of the person of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the deity of Christ, and the incarnation, how Christ can be God and man in one person. Uh, in future weeks, as God permits, we'll look at the atonement, resurrection, ascension, the offices of Christ, and again, the work of the Holy Spirit. So let's dig in first to this issue of the humanity of Christ. And we begin there by talking about the virgin birth. Uh, We believe that this doctrine is essential to our faith. There are some things that we can debate about. There's some things that we can have different opinions about, like is man two parts or three. We can have those kinds of discussions and it really won't change much in the end. When we get to the end, the the, uh, end time teaching on eschatology, the millennium, boy, there's a lot of heat and discussion about about those kind of things. But frankly, in the end, you can have wonderful fellowship with people who disagree with you on the issue of whether Jesus will physically reign for a thousand years here on earth or not. But when we come to the doctrine of the virgin birth, we're coming to one of the essentials of the faith. I believe it's impossible to deny the doctrine of the virgin birth and be a born-again Christian, be saved. Uh, You have to believe this doctrine. Now, you may not know or understand it fully. I think somebody can be justified without knowing anything about the virgin birth. But it's not long after that that they can start, they're going to start studying and understanding and they're going to read the scriptures and they will accept it. They will believe it. They will, uh, they will embrace it if they're saved people. They will not reject it. Uh, J. Gresham Machen, when he wrote the, the book Christianity and Liberalism, what he was saying is that they're just two different things. They're two different religions. That, that a denial of the virgin birth, which was at the essence of the whole liberal movement, uh, all that uh, is not Christianity. Uh, you can't be a Christian and deny this. So this is, this is essential. Now, what does the scripture say about this issue of the virgin birth? Well, first of all, we have the account in Luke chapter 1. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over his house, oh, sorry, over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, you really have in the statement of the angel to Mary all the elements of the doctrine of the incarnation right there. First of all, he will reign on the throne of his father, David. 
right? So was Jesus the son of David, descendant of David? Yes, he was. The genealogy in Matthew shows it very plainly. Record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus definitely is the son of or the descendant physically of David as the genealogy shows. And so the angel says, he will, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Do you see that? He was human. He had a human father, ancestor, so to speak, in David. He was the son of David. But it also says at the end, and so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. So he is both, as we would say, Son of Man and Son of God. And both titles are used frequently about Jesus, aren't they? Jesus used the, the title Son of Man about himself more than any other title. I don't really think anyone else used it about Jesus. He used it of himself. He was fully human, but he's also uh, fully God. The Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, Mary asked the question all of us ask when it comes to this issue of the virgin birth. How can this be? Mary was the first human being ever to ask that question. How is it possible? How can it be? And what was the angel's answer? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you. He will come upon you. Really interesting words. There's a sense of, of, of mystery. He doesn't fully answer the question, but it's really through the power of the Spirit. Now, I must tell you, the foundational uh, doctrine for us Christians, when you come to the issue of miracles and what kinds of things we can accept and the kinds of things that, that, that we, we admit into our minds and say this is, this is true, the foundational issue is that of creation, isn't it? I mean, original creation. We believe that God created something out of nothing. And not just a little something, but lots of something. He created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. And so people who, who just stumble at the idea of a virgin birth and say, where did those 23 chromosomes missing from the human father, where did they come from? They're no problem for us. If God can create stars, galaxies, planets, all of this stuff, this matter out of nothing, it's no problem for me to create the other part of what was missing in terms of the conception. We, we accept that, don't we? We don't fully understand it. But God can do that. Jesus created an ear for Malchus. Remember, boom, there's an ear. When uh, Peter had sliced it off, he was not aiming for the ear, I'm sure. He's aiming for the neck or head or something like that. He got ear. And then Jesus just touched it and there was an ear. And so for us, I'm not saying that fully explains the virgin birth. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is we don't stumble like unbelievers do. We just say, if God can create the universe out of nothing, he can certainly do this. Yeah, quickly. Is it clear that Jesus descended from Mary in the same sense that my children descended from me? Well, they get, well I mean, the Holy Spirit could have done anything. I yeah. mean, he could have just created Jesus in the womb. Yeah, I'm just going to say yes to your question if, you, if what you mean is, was Jesus fully human? So yes, well, he was. He was fully human. Okay. Yes, we do think that she's the biological mother because that's where he got his humanity in the same sense that your children are descended from you. Absolutely, and that's what, that's what we're getting. He didn't just seem to be human. We'll get to that in a minute. He really was human, and therefore he really had to have a human mother. Now, believe me, the more we meditate and the more questions that you ask, sooner or later I'm going to say, I don't know. That's just what's going to happen. And so will you when you meditate on that. There's going to be a limit. Because if, even when you look at Luke 1 and you look at the angel's answer, there's not a full explanation. It's just the Holy Spirit's going to do it. Basically, in effect, don't worry about it. But the Holy Spirit will mediate 
the fatherhood of God to Mary's womb in some miraculous way so that he will be the son of God. God will be his father, but also Mary will present her humanity as well in such a way that David will be his father as well. And so he'll reign on David's throne, David being his father. Also, it says in Matthew 1, 18 through 23, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Again, there's a, a beautiful consistency there, isn't it? Through the Holy Spirit. It's by the Holy Spirit that she was pregnant, that she had conceived. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And then it says in verse 23, uh, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Okay, so this is the, the doctrine of the virgin birth. Now, Mary was a virgin. It says before they came together. That's Matthew's version of it. Luke's version in the mouth of Mary. She says, how will this be since I am a virgin? There it is taught in two places. The supporting scripture of Isaiah 7:14 is a little problematic in that uh, Isaiah 7, as you go back, there was an immediate circumstance for Isaiah the prophet and says there the, the virgin will be with child and there's an immediate fulfillment. But we recommend and, and think that there's something different going on there, that the woman who gave birth at, in Isaiah's time was not truly a virgin or else that would kind of remove the uniqueness of Jesus' own birth. All of those are troubles that we don't necessarily need to go into tonight. Evidently, Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, felt that Isaiah 7:14, the virgin will be with child and give birth to a son, was a good prophecy or prediction of the virgin birth, and we should just accept that for now. Uh, it would take us a long time to try to work through Isaiah 7 and Matthew 1. Long story short, the virgin birth clearly taught in Matthew 1 and Luke 1. Do you see it? I mean, this, is not, this is not an optional thing. This is just plainly and clearly uh, taught. Now, why is it important? What is the doctrinal importance of the virgin birth? Well, first, it demonstrates that salvation must come from the Lord. Salvation comes from the Lord. Uh, God had promised that the seed of a woman would crush the serpent's head, Genesis 3.15. That's a rather unique uh, prophecy when you think about it. Uh, I'll put enmity between uh, your seed and, and her seed, uh, God speaking there to the serpent. And so the seed of a woman would crush the serpent's head. And so you can see how the virgin birth connects with that. Uh, Jesus was not descended uh, from the normal biological reproduction, but God had to do something in order for it to be a seed of a woman. Uh, also, the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin shows clearly that it occurred only by the power of God. It's impossible apart from that any other way. Thus, salvation can never be by human effort. God must come to us to save us. He must visit us. He must be Emmanuel, God with us, or we will not be saved. To me, that we've been studying uh, uh, different passages in our, our family devotion time, and we just did uh, Jonah 2. And Jonah 2.9 uh, is Jesus' name. Salvation is from the Lord. Jonah said that when he was inside the belly of the large fish. Salvation is from the Lord. Isn't that really the story of the whole Bible? I mean, if you reduce it just to a, sh a short little phrase, salvation is from the Lord. There are lots of different ways you can do that, but I think that that's a good way to do it. That, my friends, is Jesus' name. That's what Yahashua means. Salvation is from Jehovah. Jehovah is the Savior. Well, if he's going to do that, uh, the virgin birth is, is uh, needful. Also, um, the vir doctrine of the virgin birth made possible the uniting of full deity and full humanity in one person. 
And we must have that for salvation. If we were to consider the other ways in which God could have come to earth, no other way would so clearly display the uniting of full deity and full humanity than the virgin birth. Now, you could imagine that God could craft a body for Jesus without using an existing human woman. Uh, Didn't he craft Adam out of the dust of the earth? He could have done that for Jesus' body. But he chose not to, I think, again, in fulfillment of that prophecy in uh, Genesis 3.15, that the woman's seed would crush the serpent. There would be a continuity there. So he chose instead to work through the existing human race, specifically through this woman, Mary. Now, if God had made Christ fully formed in heaven, it would have been difficult for us to see how Christ could have been a man just like us. Just as Susan asked a moment ago, was it was he just like us? Was a birth just like us or a connection just like us? Well, we want to say yes, because the scripture says that he was a man in every way like us, yet without sin. So there was there's definitely a connection. And these uh, this idea, these doctrines are taught very plainly. Jesus was just like us in, in, in many significant and most significant ways. Yet without sin, he could do miracles, other, th- other issues that are different. We'll get into those. But just in terms of his humanity, he was fully human. And if he had been fully formed as a human in heaven and then just popped up fully formed, I think we really w- would be led into uh, docetism, which we'll talk about in a minute, that Jesus only seems to be human. We don't really know for sure. He just popped up in heaven or on earth from heaven. And, and, and so it's hard for us to see that he's anything other than like an angel, a heavenly messenger. But uh, the fact that he was born of a virgin, you know, the the whole Christmas story with all of its wonder and and this little baby. And even though it just trips your circuits, you know, because you just can't figure it out how Jesus can be fully God. And then in this little baby form and and how is he holding the universe's atoms together at that moment and how it all works? I don't have any idea, but there it is. And so we look at that and we celebrate it at Christmas time every year. But there's no doubt about it. There he is. He's a human baby born in the natural way. Third, if Christ had been born of both a human mother and a human father and his divine nature somehow in some way we can't see added, it would have been very difficult for us to see how Christ was fully God. You see, he would have just been an extraordinary man, really, just an amazing hero or something, but not fully God. So the virgin birth really is necessary, you see. There's, I, I can't think of another way that we, you can get the doctrines of Jesus' full humanity and full deity together. Uh, made possible... Uh, Christ's true humanity without inherited or original sin. And so uh, I think this is another issue. Whenever you see these uh, genealogies, they're fo- following the, uh, they're tracing out the father, the father and the son, even Jesus' genealogy. Uh, the so-called conflict between the genealogy in Matthew 1 and in Luke um, is that it seems that one of those genealogies follows Joseph's line and the other follows Mary. But even Mary's, so to speak, genealogy, it's nothing but fathers and sons. And I think that there's a doctrine here that you get the idea of the original sin is passed from father to son. Uh, and it's passed in this sort of way through the whole human race, yes. But Jesus was not subject to what we call inherited or original sin. He was not under that condemnation. He was preserved and protected from it in a marvelous way by the fact that he had no human father. But God was his father and Mary his mother. So he was protected from original or inherited sin. In order for Christ to avoid Adam's sin, it was necessary for him not to have a human father. Look again at Luke 135. The angel answered her, this is the ESV this time, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. That word therefore implies that through this process, Jesus will be born holy and not sinful. Do you see that? 
So because he's born of the Holy Spirit and not born in the natural way, he's preserved from original sin. He was pure in every way. Now, this doctrine is and has been under attack. It is an attacked doctrine. For centuries, the doctrine of the virgin birth has been uh, under attack. Thomas Jefferson, that great theologian, uh, said this, The day will come when the mystical generation of Jesus by the supreme being as his father in the womb of a virgin will be classed with the fable of the generation of Minerva in the brain of Jupiter. Thank you, Thomas Jefferson. Stick to politics. Stick to all your inventions and to Monticello, but don't do theology. I'd rather he had repented and really come to understand the Bible. But there he said, you know, it it seems to be the same kind of statements made by Voltaire and others uh, that someday Christianity will become obsolete. Well, it isn't going to be. The word of God stands forever over every generation. And it continues to speak of the virgin birth year after year. Uh, Hans Kung said this in his book on being a Christian. Although the virgin birth cannot be understood as a historical biological event. Hmm. Interesting. It can be regarded as a meaningful symbol, at least for that time. Is that inspiring to you? Would you like to put that up on your mirror? I mean, think of all the things you can do with that statement. I find it greatly discouraging. But there he was. We cannot understand this as a historical and biological. I am standing here to proclaim to you as a pastor and a preacher that Jesus' birth of a virgin was a historical and biological event. That's the very thing I'm proclaiming. That's the thing I think the scripture proclaims. It is most definitely a historical and biological event. That's what we're saying. But Hans Kung says it isn't. Um, DeWolf in The Case for Theology and a Liberal Perspective put it this way. Considering all the sermons and letters and the gospels of Mark and John that we have in the New Testament without a mention of the virgin birth, it is evident that this doctrine was not essential to the church's message of salvation. Moreover, even if Jesus were born of one human parent rather than two, this miraculous sign would not alter his essential humanity. So thus much for the virgin birth. Because it's not in the gospel of Mark, because it's not in the gospel of John, so he believes you're not going to, uh, uh, you look at it as a minor part of the uh, message of Christianity. I'm thinking it's in Matthew and Luke. I mean, does every doctrine have to be in every gospel or we won't believe it? I think that once you have this spirit, even if it were in all four, four Gospels, you still wouldn't believe it, I, I think. That's what I, what I find about these things. Also, this interesting guy, an Episcopal bishop, uh, I, I didn't know anything about him before doing this research on the virgin birth, uh, but then came to find out what a fountain of false teaching he has become in the Episcopal church. But he wrote this, In time, the virgin birth will, uh, account will join Adam and Eve and the story of the cosmic ascension as clearly recognized mythological elements in our faith tradition, whose purpose was not to describe a literal event, but to capture the transcendent dimensions of God in the earthbound words and concepts of first century human beings. Doesn't that smack of arrogance? I mean, really, when you read it, it's like we're so much more intelligent than those first century human beings. Well, they knew also that that was a miracle, didn't they? Mary knew it. How can this be, she said. This is not the natural way of things. They knew that. They were not as ignorant as we think they are. You look at some of the things the Romans built and they're still around today. They knew what they were doing. They're not idiots. And so the arrogance that's in here. But uh, unlike Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson made his quote in 1823. We've had enough time to see the foolishness of his quote. We don't have enough time on this Spong guy. But I think eventually what will be seen is that comments like his will go the way of all the earth and that the virgin birth will still be there being taught 
right to the end of human history because God has said it and it will not go away. In 1997, a survey found that 31% of Anglican vicars in England do not believe in the virgin birth. Actually, that figure would probably have been much higher if the survey had attempted to discover the number of vicars who believe in the virgin birth only in a figurative manner. The fact of the matter is, it's a doctrine under attack. Albert Moeller put it this way. He was saying that the virgin birth was essential to historical liberalism. He said, attacks upon the virgin birth emerged in the aftermath of the Enlightenment with some theologians attempting to harmonize the anti-supernaturalism of the modern mind with the church's teaching about Christ. The great quest of liberal theology has been to invent a Jesus who is stripped of all supernatural power, deity, and authority. The fountainhead of this quest includes such figures as Albert Schweitzer and Rudolf Bultmann. Often considered the most influential New Testament scholar of the 20th century, Bultmann argued that the New Testament presents a mythological worldview that modern men and women simply cannot accept as real. The virgin birth is simply a part of this mythological structure, and Bultmann urged his program of demythologization, demythologization, whatever, you see it. That's why I printed out, in case I can't pronounce it. Getting rid of the myths. Sound like Porky Pig right now. Anyway, in order to construct a faith liberated from miracles and all vestiges of the supernatural, Jesus was reduced to an enlightened teacher and existentialist model. In America, the public denial of the virgin birth can be traced to the emergence of Protestant liberalism in the early 20th century. In his famous sermon, Shall the Fundamentalist Win?, Harry Emerson Fosdick, an unabashed liberal who wrote Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah, I think. Is that right? I think he did. Anyway, aimed his attention at the vexed and mooted question of the virgin birth. Fosdick said, To believe in the virgin birth as an explanation of great personality is one of the familiar ways uh, in which the ancient world was accustomed to account for unusual superiority. And so therefore we shouldn't believe it. Right? Because there was a story of Athena, uh, coming up out of Zeus's brain, we should not believe the virgin birth. You see, that's illogical. It doesn't connect. Just because there are other versions of it means, therefore, that the Christian version, it cannot be true. It's not a historical or biological. That is illogical. What happens to people's minds? I don't understand it. But I think what ends up happening is people are afraid of being mocked by unbelievers. And so they accommodate, I'm talking about Christian theologians and pastors and all that, accommodate their message to that, the voice of unbelief. They're trying to present a gospel that the modern mind can, can palate. That's not our, that's not our job. We are to pass on safe and preserve the faith that was entrusted to us. We're to pass it on to the next generation. We're not supposed to make it palatable to the mind of unbelievers. You know, it's interesting about the whole demythologization. I tried it again, uh, getting rid of the myths. Um, when, you, when you do that, they said that they were looking down through the quarters of time, 20 centuries, down at the bottom of a well, trying to find the historical Jesus. And you know what they find at the bottom was a reflection of their own face. So basically, they would find whatever virtues they wanted in Jesus, and they found it because they had dispensed with the Gospels as a historical record. The virgin birth clearly taught in Matthew 1 and Luke 1 clearly taught, so they had to dispense with that. So what Jesus are you going to end up with? Well, one of your own imagination. My question is, after all the myths are gone, what's the point in worshiping him? What's the point in even talking about him? He didn't write anything. He wasn't a military conqueror. He didn't do anything significant. If the things that are said about him in the New Testament aren't true, what's the point in even discussing him? I wonder that. 
You know, the, the uh, Jesus stripped of all myths. Is he worth even talking about 20 centuries later, even as a great moral teacher? I would think not. These are not myths. These are truths. This is a supernatural work of God. And you know why? Because we needed a supernatural savior. We needed God to break into time and save us. And he did. So we must say, you know, Harry Emerson Fosdick, shall the fundamentalists win? It was Machen that responded with, shall unbelief win? That was a great sermon and, and rebutted point by point. Are we going to give in unbelief? The Bible clearly teaches the virgin birth. Even secular people, page four, can see the significance of this one issue. Larry King, the CNN talk show host, was once asked uh, who he would most want to interview if he could choose anyone from all history. And he replied, Jesus Christ. The questioner said, and what would you like to ask him? King replied, I would like to ask him if he was indeed virgin born. The answer to that question would define history for me. Wow, that's huge. It does define history for me. He was virgin born, therefore he's God in the flesh and I should worship him. I should conform my life to his commands and to his example. He's my savior. So that's it. And thank you for Larry King's clarity on that, at least. The fundamentals uh, were a line drawn in the uh, sand against liberalism about 100 years ago, uh, or a little less. Um, a series of 12 volumes of articles published in Chicago between 1910 and 1915. It was a witness historic Orthodox Christianity against encroaching attacks. They came up with the five fundamentals of the Christian religion. This is what he was saying, uh, Fosdick, when he said, shall fundamentalism win? Well, these are the fundamentals, the inerrancy of the Bible, the virgin birth of Christ, the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, the bodily resurrection of Jesus and the authenticity of his miracles. They drew a line in the sand, the fundamentalists did, and said, we're not giving up on any of these. And it's been a battle for a 100 years on all five fronts. But here we still stand in line with historic Christianity and say all of them are true including this idea of the virgin birth. Machen said, everyone admits that the Bible presents, represents Jesus as having been conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary. The only question is whether in making that representation, the Bible is true or false. Machen argues, if the Bible is regarded as being wrong in what it says about the birth of Christ, then obviously the authority of the Bible in any high sense is gone. So there it is. Uh, this is doctrine under attack, but it is an essential doctrine. Now, Jesus, having been uh, virgin born, was fully human, truly and absolutely human. Therefore, he had a human body uh, and it was subject to human frailty. It says in Hebrews 10:5, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. It's a quotation of the Old Testament. But to God, the father prepared a body for Jesus, knitting it together in Mary's womb. In an amazing way, Jesus' body, fearfully and wonderfully made. It says in Luke 2.21, on the eighth day when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. So he was circumcised on the eighth day like any other Jewish boy baby. Uh, John uh, 4.6, it says J Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. The Samaritan woman comes and he says, give me a drink. We don't say that he, gave, he said, give me a drink because he only seemed to be human or only seemed to be thirsty. He was genuinely thirsty and he wanted a drink. And it also says clearly in this count, he was, he was tired from his journey and he sat by the well. He was subject to human frailty and weakness. I like Mark 4.38. I'll tell you, there's so much truth in the details, all right? Uh, Mark 4.38, it says, Jesus was in, in the stern sleeping on a cushion. 
Sleeping on a cushion? What was the cushion for? Well, because the board was hard. Okay? I mean, I, I'm trying to think of a deeper theological significance of Jesus' cushion. Jesus put a cushion under himself the same reason you do. Okay? Because it's softer than the board. And, and frankly, the more you meditate on that, the more you're kind of saved from a weird asceticism in this world and all that. If Jesus slept on a cushion, then Martin Luther gained nothing by spending long nights on cold stone floors. All right? Nothing whatsoever. But there Jesus is on a cushion. And the disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if, we're, if we drown? That's a whole other story for another time. But uh, Jesus was asleep. He was sleeping. And why? Because he was tired. He was subject to the same human frailty. Our God that we worship neither slumbers nor sleeps. He doesn't need to. He never, he never gets weary, never gets fatigued. But Jesus got tired, subject to human frailty. And John 19:28. later, knowing that all was now completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. So frankly, so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus' humanity is built right into prophecy about him. He's going to be thirsty on the cross. And so they gave him vinegar to drink. In John 19:34, it says, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. So again, a clear testimony of Jesus' physical nature. He had a body with blood in it and with uh, fluids. Uh, he still had a human body after his resurrection. And that's what we believe when we talk about the bodily resurrection of Christ. We'll get to that more later when we discuss that. But Jesus had a body after his resurrection. He said, look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. That's after the resurrection. That's incredibly significant, isn't it? Jesus permanently has a human body. He didn't just have it during his ministry on earth. He has it now, permanently and forever. Now, it's an amazing body, a body we cannot fully understand. It's called a spiritual body in 1 Corinthians 15. But he said, touch me and see a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. So there he has it. He's got a physical uh, body after the resurrection. Jesus also had a human mind. He could learn. <clears throat> Luke 2.52 it says, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And it says again in Hebrews 5.8, although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Now, here's my question to you. If your circuit breakers haven't tripped, are we? How can you be omniscient and still learn things? How do you do that? Any, anyone have an idea on that? How do, you, how do you do that? How do you be omniscient and still learn things? Got that one, Jim? Anybody? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know, but I do know he has. He still has that resurrection body. Uh, he, is, he looks like a, a, a lamb having been slain, John sees in that vision. Uh, and, so, uh, and then he appears in Revelation 1, and uh, John turns around and sees him, and there he is still in his human body. And so it's a, you know, it's a, great, it's a great mystery. Yeah, quickly. Regarding his uh, being subject to human limitations, mm -hmm. uh, my question is about his death. Right. Various well, in a couple of the Gospels, it says he yielded up his spirit. Right. Was his death just like what I understand most people's death to be, which is that it comes when it comes? No. In that way, it's different. He chose. he chose. And in that way, so also with his birth. He's the only person that's ever born that was ch that chose to be born. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, yeah, but he, he laid down his life. 
He said, in John 10, no one takes my life from me. And that way it was different. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down freely. But there's not a biological issue there. I mean, basically, he's human being, and he died in that his soul or spirit, you know, two part, three part, I guess it's more important than we thought it was. Anyway, uh, separated from his body, he died. But the difference between him and us is he can choose that moment. They were shocked when he was so quickly dead. Pilate was. The whole point of crucifixion, it wasn't a quick death. And after three hours, he's dead. And that's it. And why? Because everything was fulfilled. The scripture was accomplished. There was nothing more to be done. And so he he yielded up his spirit in a way we don't have the power to do. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. Yes, go ahead. I have to think so. I think that's what it means when it says he learned obedience from what he suffered. And, and Hebrews 10 talks in mysterious ways about Jesus learning and, and his suffering being essential to our salvation. I think the way it works is that's the way he can be a faithful and merciful high priest for us. He knows what it's like to be fully fatigued. I mean, just totally exhausted. And then at that moment, have the devil come at the time when you're weakest and tempt you. But he didn't sin. And to me, that's a great encouragement. What that tells me is I can be wiped out too and face my strongest temptation and still not yield because Jesus by his spirit is in me and I can stand firm. But he lived through it and we can't say you don't know what it's like. Yes, I do. Yeah, go ahead, Peter. Right. Yeah, we would have to have to say that. As a man, he, he did. And, and we're, we're taking on the mystery of the expressions in Hebrews, which we would not have dared to utter, but the author of Hebrews did. And he said he learned obedience from what he suffered and, and that he was made perfect to be our savior. Those kind of, that kind of language. It's a, you know, it's a challenging thing. I'm going to keep going if I might. Okay. Um, so Jesus could learn and it is a mystery. In other words, to some degree, his mind was ready to be programmed like any young child's was. He had to be trained. He had to learn. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. That's what we're getting at. All right. Jesus also accepted certain limitations of knowledge. Mark 5.30, at once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? Now, if you read those accounts, and they're in, in a number of the parallel gospels, it really, you just have to accept that Jesus didn't know who touched him. I mean, it's not written like he's tricking somebody. Sometimes he asks questions to test people, like uh, the feeding of the 5,000 in uh, John 6. He asked Philip a question only the Testament says. But that time, he, it seemed that he just genuinely didn't know who touched him. He said, no, no, power's gone from me. Somebody touched me. Clearly, we don't even have to wonder about, about the matter where he himself says, no one about, knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So there's certain limitations in his incarnation, um, limitations of knowledge, some things he didn't know. Jesus also had a human soul and human emotions. Uh, it says in Mark 6, 6, he was amazed at their lack of faith. In Matthew 8, 10, when Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. John 12, 27, now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it's for this very reason I came to this hour. Jesus is actually a very emotional being. And one of the, one of the greatest studies I've ever read, B.B. Warfield on the emotional life of our Lord, written about a hundred years ago, incredible work and a careful study on all the times that Jesus shows emotions in the Gospels. It's an amazing study. And I learned so much from it. One of the things I learned was how Jesus was in John 11 enraged 
uh, you know, at that whole account with, with Lazarus when he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Uh, he, he's deeply troubled, deeply moved in spirit and troubled, it says in the English, but it's really he's angry. He's like, like a horse stomping and snorting. Um, but it's not, he's not angry at Martha and Mary. He's not angry like they're, because of their unbelief. He's angry at death. He just hates death and he wants to rip it to shreds. But not yet. Death is the final enemy. And so there's this rage and that's why he weeps. And there's all of this stuff. The emotions that just flow in John 11 are so powerful. See if you can get it and read it. B.B. Warfield, The Emotional Life of Our Lord. But our, our Lord was an emotional being. Remember the time that he, he, he wove together the, the cords and made a whip and then drove out all of the money changers and and just, you know, all the English translations put exclamation marks uh, along the statement, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? They weren't said plainly or with no emotion. He was clearly greatly aroused in his passion. He was an emotional being. His emotions were pure and holy. They were perfect, unlike ours, but he was an emotional being. Also, people who knew Jesus at the time, people who were near him, they saw him as only a man. And so they're always shocked when he's claiming to be God because he just looks like a man. If he had some kind of an ethereal glow around him, if he, if he just somehow just looked different than any other man that ever lived, I don't think you'd get the reactions you get in, in the Synoptic Gospels and in John. I don't think you'd get it. Uh, for example, in Matthew 13, Jesus coming to his hometown began teaching the people in their synagogues and they were amazed. Where did this man, stress the word man, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Huh. Isn't his mother's name Mary and aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where, didn't, where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, only in his hometown, in his own house, is a prophet without honor. They're, they're amazed because they don't understand how a man can be behaving the way he was and saying the things he did. John 10, 33, uh, Jesus, uh, verse before that said, I've shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these are you stoning me? Very interesting statement. Jesus, always challenging. Uh, like when they slapped him during his trial, and Jesus said, if I have, if I have spoken falsely, then bear witness of it. But if I've spoken the truth, then why did you strike me? You know, the guy goes home with a question to ask himself. Why did I hit him? You know, <laughs> I mean, did I say anything? He said, I've spoken openly in front of everyone. I didn't have anything in secret. Ask the witnesses. They're the ones who heard me. This is an illegal trial. You're not supposed to talk to me. Talk to the witnesses. Where are your witnesses? And the guy slaps him. Jesus turns and says calmly, if I said falsely, then bear witness. If You know, he says, give me the witnesses. This isn't the way we do it. Follow the rules. That's about, he knew they wouldn't because they couldn't, they couldn't execute him by following the rules. Why? Because he was sinless, right? So they had to break the rules in order to do it. You see what I'm saying? But still, he probes this man's soul. Why did you strike me? I've shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these are you stoning me? We're not stoning you for any of these, but for blasphemy. Because you, a mere man, claim to be God. What does that tell you about Jesus' physical appearance? It was just like us doesn't it? Because, again, if he had some kind of different look or glow or if the, the glory of the Lord shone around him all the time, like it did on the Mount of Transfiguration, by the way, so it's fully within his right if he had wanted to do it, uh, I think he wouldn't have these kind of reactions. He's just a mere man to them. And then there are his, his uh, brothers, who I've said before were his uh, PR managers. They wanted to manage his stage career. 
and said, you know, if you're going to do all these miracles, you ought to go where there's lots of people. You know, nobody does these things and hides. What are you doing? Can we, Jesus, sit down for a minute. If we could just give you some advice on how to do this Messiah thing. After all of the advice is given, John gives this editorial comment for even his own brothers did not believe in him. If they had believed in him, they would have trusted the way he was going about his ministry and not tried to give him his advice. They didn't believe in him because he looked just like anybody else. I think it must have been a great stumbling block to be a brother of Jesus, you know, because he just looks so ordinary physically. But yet, if you look beyond it, you can see the glory that's of the only begotten son of the father, full of grace and truth. If you know what you're looking for, if you're looking for moral issues and things that were said and things that were done, then you can see the deity of Christ. But if you're going to just look at the physical side, you're not going to see it. I think that's part of what what the Apostle Paul, writing in that first generation, said, though we once knew Christ in a carnal way, we know him in that way no longer. So you might have had a physical or fleshly relationship with Jesus. It's not that way anymore. He's glorified now. He's risen. He's ascended to the right hand of God. So we don't think of him that way anymore. We have instead this relationship with him as God at the right hand of the Father. But I think that first generation of people, they struggle with this issue. You're a mere man. How can you be God? So... That all of that testifies to the humanity of Christ. <clears throat> we also have this issue of his sinlessness, which we've already talked about several times. In this way, he was distinctly different from all of us. All of us are corrupt. We're sinful, as we've seen again and again in Romans chapter 3. There is no one righteous, not even one. But Jesus was perfectly righteous. Every time I make a statement like there's not a single person that's ever kept the law, I always have to add, except one. Jesus kept it perfectly. He never broke even the smallest jot or tittle of the law of God. He was perfect and sinless. Now, is it possible to be truly human and not sin? You know, to err is human, that kind of thing. So if you don't err, you're not human. Well, yes, Adam was fully human before he sinned, wasn't he? Yes, he was. And Jesus was fully human. We just are so used to sin. Wouldn't it be nice to go through, just say, Lord, I would like one day in which I don't sin at all, just to see what it's like. You know, to just go through one day in which I do everything the way you want me to do, in which I love you with all of my heart and love my neighbor as myself and just do it all. I don't do anything I shouldn't do and I don't leave undone anything you want me to do. I make the most of every opportunity, A to Z, the whole day. Do you think that day would feel different than any other day you've had ever? I would think so. Jesus had nothing but those kind of days. That's all he lived. Five minutes, okay. <laughs> Five minutes. I guess it depends how you define it. If you talk about a violation, of, I mean, if you say sin is, is, is a transgression of the law, but then if you kick in the law that the law is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, I don't do anything with all of my heart. As a matter of fact, sin is so kind of in, interwoven. <clears throat> I don't think we sin with all of our heart, and I don't think we ever do righteousness with all of our heart. And I think Galatians 5 kind of teaches that for the rest of our lives, we're going to be mixed, struggling beings that don't do anything wholeheartedly. So I don't think so, actually. And I think the more you go on in your Christian life, the more you just see how totally dependent on grace you are. You just need to be covered with grace all the time. We're standing in grace. We're saved by grace every moment. But Jesus, you see, Jesus could stand before God on his own merit, in his own righteousness. He could say, give me what I truly deserve, and it would have been to sit at his right hand. I mean, it, that's, 
that's Jesus. But the beautiful thing about it is that is our righteousness now by imputation. We get his righteousness. Isn't that beautiful? So it's, a, it's an incredible thing. Sinlessness, though. Jesus' sinlessness is established in the scriptures. He was, I've said before, I'll say it again, without question, the most tempted man that's ever been ever lived. No question about it. If you think about it this way, I, I've said said before, um, I, I believe that it's probably true that the, that the devil has never personally interacted with you at all. Okay, I'm not meaning that to be demeaning, but I just don't think there's any fish that are big enough in this room right now that the devil's lowered himself to trouble himself with any of us, all right? Instead, he has a kingdom in which he has delegated those things to lesser demons, right? And so you have demonic temptations, but I don't think you have the devil per se tempting you, except that it is his kingdom and his kind of rule that that ultimately. So we could say Solomon built the temple, but I doubt he carved anything except the, the initial one with the silver chisel. Yeah, do that one, and then the workers do the rest, right? And we know all about his workers because Rehoboam wanted to keep it going, and they're like ready to stone the guy. I think they did stone the worker or the, the overseer, whatever. So I don't think Solomon built the temple, but we could say Solomon built it, because he ordered it done. And so we do say our enemy, the devil, pursues us. But I don't think he's really personally after any of us. I think rather his kingdom and the world system he has set up harasses us every day of our lives. Jesus was not like that. You see, Jesus was in the devil's crosshairs right away. The, the, The demon said, we know who you are, the Holy One of God. They knew that Mary was a virgin. They knew it. I mean, there's no, they, they know. <laughs> she was a virgin. He's the Holy One of God. They, they knew that the angel uh, had come down and what the angel said to the shepherds. They, they knew what the prophecies were. They knew that the angelic host had sung glory to God in the highest. They knew all of these things and they knew who Jesus was. That's why they motivated Herod to try to kill Jesus in his infancy. They were harrying Jesus at every moment. Jesus was, no doubt about it, the most tempted man that has ever lived. And you think about how the Holy Spirit thrust Jesus out into the desert to be tempted by the devil. That's it. That's an amazing thought. Toe to toe. Yes, go ahead. Uh, just because we give in. Let's say a temptation has has a 100% value. We kick out at value 30 or 42 or 51. And even if you withstand a certain temptation, I'm just talking about a life of temptation. I'm talking about a history, giving in, memories and things like that. He stands firm, all of the temptations, 100% until the devil leaves him for, and comes back another more opportune time. He was tempted in every way as we are. So the essential nature of the temptations are the same. But he was more tempted than us and then he never yielded to any of them. And also because he was strategically more important than any of us are, he was the son of God. And therefore the devil dealt directly with him. We know of demon possession, don't we? We've read about it. We see it in the scriptures. We have only one case of Satan possession. You know what it is, don't you? Judas. Satan was directly involved in Jesus' betrayal. So that's, I guess, I don't know if that's a good answer. I think it's the focus of Satan per se, the king of the evil kingdom, and the fact that that he never yielded to any temptation. And so his temptation go to the full amount. Also, he was asked, commanded by the Father to do things we weren't. So you look at Gethsemane and you see he's feeling the weight of drinking that cup. We've never faced that. Now, remember how Peter and, uh, was it James and John said, Jesus said, can you drink the cup I'm about to drink? Remember that? What was their answer? Oh yeah, sure, we can drink it. Um, No, 
no, they couldn't drink that cup. Jesus said, to drink from my cup, you will. All right, you'll drink the, you know, from my sufferings. But you will not drink the cup that I drink. You know, that's what he was dealing with. So that, that's, I, I don't want to take away the strength of the statement we have in Hebrews that Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are. I just think he faced some temptations we don't. You know, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Have you ever been tempted like that? I never have. And it's interesting how the devil comes at him with unusual temptations, deity-type temptations. How does Jesus respond like any of us could? It is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He behaves humanly while he fights off the temptation. You know why? To give us encouragement so that we can fight off temptation. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. So we've got God's word and Jesus has given us the sword and so we can fight. Jesus was tempted uh, uh, by uh, the devil. Where are we? I don't even know. I'm just page six. Oh, yes, we're establishing scripturally that Christ was perfectly sinless. Listen to this, John 8, 46. Jesus speaking to his enemies. He says, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? That's an incredible thing. And their mouths were shut. You talk about, you know, just like Daniel and, and all of those, uh, those uh, Medo-Persian counselors that were trying to bring him down because he was one of the top three leaders under Darius the Mede, remember? They're trying to find something wrong with him. They said, we will never find anything wrong with this guy except in reference to his relationship with God. Remember that? Well, do you, do you not think they're scouring Jesus' life for something they could use to bring him down? They couldn't find anything. And he knew it. And he said right to them, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? And the answer was no. He was sinless. Uh, Luke 4, 33 and 34. Uh, in, the, in the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, ha, what, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, obviously, we want a better testimony than a demon. Okay. But here's the thing. The demon is saying, you are holy. And he was in his 30s. That's amazing. He'd never sinned. And the devils knew it. He'd never committed any sin. Hebrews 4.15 says it directly. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Yet we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. That's a plain, straight statement of Jesus' sinlessness. He never sinned. Uh, it says in Acts 3.14, you disown the holy and righteous one and ask that a murderer be released to you. First Peter 1, 18 and 19, you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you uh, from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So Jesus' sinlessness was put into prophecy. The lamb had to be without blemish or defect, right? And Jesus was. He was sinless. First uh, Peter one twenty two says it. Two twenty two says it directly. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. And then in Romans eight three, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, and for sin he uh, condemned sin in the flesh. It says in the likeness of the sinful flesh because he wasn't sinful. He just looked like the rest of us, but there was a big difference. He never sinned. Okay, what is the practical application of Jesus' sinlessness? Well, Christ as our merciful and faithful high priest successfully fought off every temptation. That's good to know, isn't it? One of the number one lies the devil comes and tells you is you will sin. Sooner or later, I've got you, right? 
it, it's greatly undermining. People who are, are fighting in a war, let's say they're, they're guarding a, a, a fortress or castle, if they think they're going to win eventually, they will hold out a lot better than those who think that there is no hope. Those folks are going to sue for peace. And so what the devil tries to do is lie to you and tell you that there's no hope. Sooner or later, you're going to sin. Jesus is our hope. He never sinned. They never got him to sin. And he, by his spirit, is living inside you. And so therefore, it says, let us approach the throne of grace so we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. One of the greatest things that's happened to me in my Christian life in terms of that verse has been how it has changed for me from being a mop to clean up the mess afterwards. I sinned and now I need forgiveness and restoration. Well, yeah, it's there. But wouldn't it be better if you never did it? Wouldn't it be better if during the time of temptation, you go to the throne of grace and receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need? Why don't you say, now is my time of need, Lord. Now I need to know how you stood firm against all those temptations and he will help you. Call in the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Ask him for help in the day of temptation and he will help you. We know that it can be done, that he who came to live within us actually did it. We have encouragement to stand firm uh, in our times of temptation. Let's stop there. Next time, God willing, we'll talk about the question, could Jesus really have sinned? If he was God, could he really have been tempted? We'll get into that question next time. Let's close in prayer. Landis, can I prevail on you to close us? Thanks. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.